Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We pray that you are blessed by the sharing of God's truth for us this day. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We're in session 21 of the book of Revelation, where we're taking a look at the beginning of, of the trumpet judgments where the seventh seal opens up and begins a new series of events in the heptatic structure of Revelation. We'll talk about that in just a second. But um, as always, especially when we delve into this particular book, we want to do so in a season of prayer. So let's bow our hearts together. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, as we begin to navigate these waters, uh, let it be you who guides our ship. Let it be you who steers us and who provides us with the wind to move us in the direction that you would have us to go, to compel us through the love of your Son. So be with us now. Open us fully to your word that it might not only strengthen our faith, but help us to be an encourager to others. Uh, be with our community too as we face these unprecedented times. But join with us here. Help us to claim the, the blessing promised to those who read and those who study this precious book, which is a gift from you. And it's in the matchless name of Christ we pray. Amen. So taking a look, again, we are in the, the hard prophecy section of Revelation. Um, and we're taking a look in the heptatic structure, there is a, a series of judgments that are proclaimed upon the earth. We have seen the scroll of seven seals, and the seventh seal is about ready to be opened. Um, and we're getting ready to see that morph into seven trumpets. So we've already covered six of the seven seals. Jesus is opening seal number seven, and we're going to see that as the seal is opening, the angels are rushing to their instruments. They've opened the brass locker and other band jokes that you can insert in here. Uh, but there are other things that happen with the opening of this seal as well. Uh, a couple of things that, that I find very curious is I continue to try to find the harmony between this book and the rest of the Bible. And one of the things that I hope that, uh, that I touched on last section, and I hope that uh, you kind of took a look at in, in your reading for this section, is the parallels between Revelation and the book of, of Joshua. And I'll go back over some of them, but I've added a few here. First, remember that the title character, uh, Revelation being the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yeshua, which is the actual Aramaic form of Jesus, is a diminutive variant on the name Yehoshua, which is Joshua. Um, both books basically tell the story of a divine servant reclaiming a stolen land out of the hands of a usurper. Both involve a seven-year campaign of some sort, in this case, the, the last of Daniel's weeks. In the book of Joshua, there is a seven-nation, formerly ten, three of them knocked down by Moses, seven-nation coalition that rises against the people of God. The coalition is led by a king of the Amorites, by the, a gentleman by the name of Adonai Zedek, uh, an antichrist figure, an anti-God figure who claims Godhead for himself, whose name literally translates to the Lord of Righteousness. We also see that this guy is later judged through grains of hail and fire. There are miracles involving the sun and the moon. Uh, the enemy commanders hide in caves, just as they did as, at the last chapter that we covered last week. But I also want you to notice that both books involve a prelude to the founding of a kingdom. The founding of a monarchy. Taking a look at the Battle of Jericho itself... Two spies are sent in, but they're not so much as spies because they don't do really that much intelligence gathering. What they do do is they rescue somebody out of a condemned city. 
Namely, a woman who ends up becoming an ancestor of Jesus Christ himself. Rahab, who is the, if I remember correctly, uh, the grandmother to Boaz, who is also the grandfather of King David. Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David. I've got that line, but I don't have the, the relationship correct. But anyway, uh, so, he, so she is a Gentile woman who becomes a female ancestor of the king of Israel and later on, in earthly terms anyway, the king of kings. So that's interesting, but she's rescued because of these two, uh, two gentlemen that are sent in to redeem, or to not to personally redeem, but to tell of a redemptive act. She is rescued from them. Uh, sections of the Torah are actually suspended during the Battle of Jericho. Uh, for first off, the Levites, who are exempted from military service, they suddenly get involved in the military because they march in procession around the city. Um, again, the Levites, the only duties that they have that, that you could consider military, they're exempt from the army, but they're used as the guards of the tabernacle and later on the temple and the praetorian guard of the king. But they're not supposed to engage in the military of Israel itself. They're not supposed to go to war with the armies, in other words. Here they do. They march in formation with them. And the Ark of the Covenant actually proceeds them uh, in formation. The Ark of the Covenant is supposed to actually be in the Levites in the middle part of Israel when it's moving. The, uh, the coalition of Judah is the, the vanguard, then the Levites, then Ephraim and, and his bunch, or Manasseh and his bunch later on. Uh, work is actually performed on the Sabbath. Remember, they march around the walls of Jericho once a day for six days, and on the seventh day, the last day of the week, they, they do seven times as much. And it also involves seven trumpet blasts, but it's preceded by silence. When this episode begins, Joshua actually orders everybody in the Israeli procession to not speak, to keep silent. Even though they're very visible, before the trumpets sound, they keep their silence. And I want you to pay attention to that. And in both instances, in the books of Joshua and the books of Revelation, a human being of the fallen, feeble, fickle, and finite kind was not the conqueror. God was. Again, in the book of Joshua, Joshua himself approaches this unknown figure like a sentry and challenges him, asking him, who are you for? Us or our enemy? And this unknown figure answers, remove the shoes from off your feet for the land on which you stand is holy. And in that instant, he knows who he's talking to. God was the conqueror. This also begins an interesting and very unique concept in the Jewish cult, to the Jewish culture, which is the year of Jubilee. It was instituted after the conquest. It begins not on the Feast of Trumpets, but after the Feast of Trumpets, on the Day of Atonement. Ten days after the Jewish New Year. During this time, all debts are forgiven. All lands are returned to their original owners, which is interesting. In, in Jewish society in this point in time, in First Temple Judaism, if you, if you were entitled to land, thanks to uh, the events of the books of Joshua, your family held on to that property uh, that was your family's inheritance perpetually. And if you sold land, quote unquote, you didn't actually sell the property itself because the property belongs to God. You were more than less assigned this parcel for your family. What you did was you effectively, what we would consider, leased it out or sold the use of the property to whoever was buying for it. So all lands returned to their original owners and all Hebrew slaves were set free. And that's listed on the screen in front of you. So what's the prophetic significance of the year of Jubilee and how it would impact what we're studying right now? Well, first, uh, the year of Jubilee is actually 
referenced as the period of reconciliation by Peter himself in his letters. And as he kind of insinuates, creation is released from the curse of Adam. The kingdom is returned to the king and to the people of God. The debt of sin is wholly forgiven and all slavery to sin is utterly abolished. The redemption of all things. So, go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word, having gotten that background out of the way, to the book of Revelation, chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8, where we're taking a look at the trumpet judgments. Starting with verse 1. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven, and I saw the seven angels who stand in the presence of God, Seven trumpets were given to them. So the seal leads to these seven other things, the seven trumpet judgments. Verse 3, another angel with a golden incense burner came and stood at the altar. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. I want you to underline that phrase in your copy of God's Word. Offer with the prayers of all not just a few of the saints, not just the saints heretofore gathered, but the prayers of all the saints. None have been lost. And this was offered on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up into the presence of God from the angel's hand. The angel took the incense burner, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth where peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. So the seventh seal, to put, uh, just to kind of list its impact. First of all, there's a silence in heaven, which is Very unique in the annals of God's Word. Why? Because earlier we heard that the angels, the elders, the saints gathered before the throne, they never stopped praising God day after day, constantly. Yet, here, with the opening of this seal, praise is pause. All noise in heaven suddenly comes to a climax. The angels are summoned for the trumpet judgments, and the prayers of the saints are brought before and offered unto God. And again, I want you to notice the phrase, all of the saints. Meaning again, uh, being Baptist, we're fond of the phrase, once saved, always saved. But this is an indicator that none of the saints, even in their these tumultuous times, none of the saints have been lost. Thy kingdom come. Just taking a look at some of the prayers that we see offered up. Thy kingdom come is of particular relevance here because every time that we have been taught to pray that in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what are we actually praying for? Do we ever stop to pause and think about what that prayer actually asks God to do? It asks God to reconcile everything that He is in heaven here as well, that what He wants to have happen in heaven or rather what he wants to happen on earth will happen with the exact same intensity and directness as it would in his immediate presence. Meaning that the will of God will be made manifest no matter the circumstances here on earth. Thy kingdom come, that he again will assume control directly of the planet. Thy will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. And this was a a, a phrase not only uttered by Jesus, but at least through sentiment, also by Noah, by Abraham, by David, by Mary, let it be unto me just as you have said, and Paul himself. But the other prayer that we hear uh, mentioned in the book of Revelation is the one of the martyrs. How long until you judge those who live upon the earth and avenge our blood? Now, something really quickly I wanted to share with you is... Why incense? 
everything that we do here on earth as far as worship is concerned is to have one of two uh, focuses. Number one, it remembers the Christ and celebrates the Christ event. It reflects what Jesus did here on earth. It's a way of giving thanks. What do we do when we come into the church? We form the body of Christ as we come in together and we have a time of fellowship together before the service. We, uh, we sing in adoration of God, recalling the story through song. We break open the bread of life and are taught just as He taught. We remember in baptism the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. We come at the service of the table to not only celebrate our relationship with Him, but as He commanded us to remember it until He comes. Remember His blood. Remember His broken body given for you. So all worship memorializes the Christ event. But not only does it do that, it's also a reflection, dim though it might be, of the kingdom of heaven. Let me give you a case in point. This is the layout of Solomon's temple. Incidentally, I want you to take a notice of the shape. Now, Solomon's temple is a reflection of the throne room of God. When you take a look at it, there is the incense burner, which is the, or the, the golden altar, which is what the arrow is pointing to right now, next to the menorah, the menorah, the seven-headed um, uh, lampstand, excuse me, the table of showbread. There is a, a curtain there, or a giant veil, that is ornate with emblems of the very angels, the cherubim that we've been reading about, who are guarding the throne of God. Behind that veil is the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. I know that we tend to think of the mercy seat as the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, and it does rest upon it, but it's treated in Scripture as two different artifacts. Those are listed idiomatically as the footstool of God. What is behind the footstool? The throne. So effectively, the temple is a, a, an earthly representation. Again, dark as it may be because of the fact that we're human beings trying to do it, but it's a representation of the throne room of God. So when after a great deal of ceremonial preparation, the high priest of Israel, one person, only once a year when he goes in and places the blood on the Ark of the Covenant, the box containing the smashed tablets of stone that held the Ten Commandments, what he is seeing, what God is, is, is seeing, represented in that ritual, as he stares down onto his footstool, he sees the broken law being covered by innocent blood. Does that sound familiar? Worship is also a dimmed reflection of a heavenly reality. And we can see that through the construction in more than one way of Solomon's temple. Here's a cutaway image showing where the incense altar lays. Now there's the, the statue of the cherubim right behind the veil but there's the altar of incense. And whenever the high priest goes before the veil in the Ark of the Covenant and all that that symbolizes the throne room, what he is doing is he's burning incense. And the incense, there is a special formula for this incense, a special recipe that is only ever to be used for this one purpose. And as the smoke enters into the Holy of Holies between the, the curtain and the wall, the idea is the prayers of Israel rise up with the smoke. And God inhales it similar to the way that when the Bible reads in, in Torah, when you read about all the sacrifices, they become a pleasing aroma unto the Lord. That's the idea. Strange, the, symbolic, the symbolism here is that God breathes in the prayers of the saints and breathes out the Word of God. Isn't that interesting? Here's another image. Um, this, incidentally, some of these come from Rose Publications, and this one in particular comes from the Temple Institute, which actually has in Jerusalem a very nice uh, museum 
where they've actually recreated a lot of the temple, um, the temple furnishings. And you can see there the incense burner in front of the great, uh, the great veil as they're offering prayers to God. So anyway, that's the background. Again, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. So incense becomes a symbol of prayer. And this is a reflection of the golden altar that is placed before the Holy of Holies. It was tended, it was supposed to be tended by a priest three times every day. Note that number. Three times that prayer was offered with incense before the Holy of Holies. Three temples that will be built in Jerusalem. I don't think that's coincidence. That's just me. Anyway, this is also being offered in front of the mercy seat, which is on the other side of the curtain. Now, here is a, yes. Yes, because God originally supplied that particular fire. That's the reason. The, the question was, if you didn't hear it over there, the question was on the origin of the fire that was supposed to be brought onto this. This is the Temple Institute's recreation of the golden incense altar, which you can see on their web, website. But the coals for the fire used to burn the incense were actually taken off of the great altar, the sacrificial altar, outside of the temple proper where animals were sacrificed. Why? Because that fire was lit not by human hands but originally by God. That was the reason why the two sons of Aaron died when they just tried to, well, you know, it's a fire, just bring fire. But no, this had to be a work not of human hands but a work of God. Isn't that interesting too? Could not be a work of human hands. Had to be a work of God. Anyway. And it's also curious that this very emblem of the prayers of the saints was then taken by an angel, thrust upon the planet, and was the emblem by which judgments were brought upon the world. And we hear that, this, that uh, once the incense was cast out to the planet, voices were heard, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. Incidentally, the word that was here used for voices, phoné, could actually just mean noise. So rumblings, I think, in some of your translations instead of voices. But here's what I want you to get from that. Number one, prayer is important to God. In fact, they are so important to God that for a span of about 30 minutes, God halts all, even His own praise, causes silence, so he could hear your prayers. Secondly, he responds. Prayer is God's way of using you in what he's about to do. And that is literally imaged here. as the prayer of the saints, symbolized by the, the burning incense, is cast out upon the world. And it has an impact. And going on with verse 7. The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were hurled to the earth. So a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now this was interesting, very reminiscent of the plagues of Egypt. We see three of those plagues right here, hail, fire, blood. Um, hail is again used as judgment in multiple examples. We not only see it in Exodus, it's in Job, it's in Isaiah, it's in Joel. Incidentally, something else I want you to take a look at here. Yeah, when, when it says the green grass of the earth, the word translated as grass is kortos from the Greek, meaning a court or a garden, courtyard. In other words, so by implication, we could be talking about all the pasture land or all the garden land, all the agricultural capable land of the earth is suddenly consumed. Blades of grass, hay, and so forth. So, so grass does factor in, but more or less directly, we're talking about agricultural property. It also says 33 trees, 33% uh, of the trees. And one uh, comment that, that I usually, commentary that I usually check 
Um, they identified the word for trees, dendros, as meaning fruiting trees. I couldn't find that in any of my lexicons. Uh, the meaning that I found there was simply either a tree or something that grows tall and tree-like, spreading out its branches. But I would say that fruit bearing is kind of implied because if we're talking about garden land, chances are we're talking about orchard land as well. So basically what he's saying here is 33% of all of the food producing land on the planet has just been evaporated. And that 33% or one third comes up again and again and again during these judgments. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain. Notice the way that that's phrased. It doesn't say a great mountain. It says something like a great mountain, like or as. That's a simile. Pay attention to that language because if you don't, it gets really confusing. If I think that I've got that parts of speech life, like or as, simile, without like or as, metaphor. Anyway, let's move on. So something like a great mountain that was on fire, that was ablaze, uh, was hurled into the sea so that a third of the sea became as blood or became blood rather. A third of the living creatures of the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. I think that makes the Pacific Ocean quite a tempting target if I'm not too wrong on my geography because that would be one third of the planet's uh, surface watered uh, in one fell swoop. So something like again meaning a simile, meaning that it resembles but it is not literally. Uh, so in this case, we're not talking about Mount Everest literally being picked up, set on fire, and then thrown into the Pacific. Something like unto a mountain ablaze with fire was cast into the water. So we can tell that it was a massive size, being mountain-like, rocky, and on fire. Now this judgment was directed uh, straight at the oceans, salt water, marine water, and Either it chemically altered the ocean's makeup, making it like blood, as some of my versions read, or it actually became blood itself, the way that the Nile became blood once, that, uh, once the staff hit the Nile in the case of the Egyptian judgment. In either event, 33% of the marine life on the planet was gone in one fell swoop in a third of all ocean-bound vessels. So that's a great toll of human life, commerce, food supply. He's, he's attacking us in the food. Well, not us, but this is a judgment on those on the planet. Third trumpet. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from heaven. It fell on a third of the rivers in springs of water. The, the language suggests that it isn't one solid object impacting, but that it's somehow scattering as it falls, disintegrating through the air. It fell on a third of the rivers in the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood. So many of the people died from the waters because they had been made bitter. Now, this is also reflective of a scene in the Old Testament where the children of Israel, uh, I think that it was at the waters of Meribah, if I'm not too mistaken. It could, I could be off at the name of the place. But they had found, a, they were wandering through the desert and they finally find a place of naturally occurring water and it's bitter. And they complain to Moses, did we not have enough graves in Egypt? And you know, Moses gets all upset as he, as he was wont to do. And he calls to God and God tells him to pick up a stick and throw it in the water and all of a sudden the water becomes sweet. Uh, but in this case, so this, this appears to be kind of a, maybe not a direct echo, but it has that similarity. But instead of bitter water becoming sweet, water potentially making you sick becoming fresh, it's the exact opposite. All the fresh or a third of the fresh water available on the planet suddenly becomes bitter and undrinkable and it makes people die who attempt it. So a star from heaven. Now again, uh, in some places in the Bible you hear stars used idiomatically as angels. 
So there are many that presuppose that this is an angel being cast out of heaven or, or an angel falling from heaven, not literally falling, but being sent out with this mission. Uh, so either an angel or a demon or again an object. But the, the wording suggests that as the object or being whoever is falling, that it's disintegrating as it falls and is scattering something into the fresh water supply that's targeted to have this kind of impact. Incidentally, wormwood is an English term that, is, uh, that identifies a particular species of plant. That plant is absinthe, from which a, a very intoxicating drink is, is derived. But that word literally translates into bitterness. So the, the, the object, whatever it was, is literally named bitterness. In Scripture, it's used figuratively to speak of anything that is a calamitous. It tastes of ashes in your mouth type of thing. That's the idea. And another unverifiable source that I will nevertheless talk to you about, um, they claim that that word also means incapable of being uh, ingested or incapable of being drunk without self-harm. Again, I couldn't find a, a Greek reference that corroborates that. In case you wonder what I do in my office all day, I immerse myself in this stuff so I know what I can give you is in good faith. But anyway, so the comet of bitterness, targeted at freshwater sources, rendering a third or 33% of all freshwater stores on the planet becoming toxic, and an uncounted, this is interesting, they say that many perished, but they didn't give a number. Now normally in Revelation they do, but in this case they just give us the, the fact that many perished because the waters of these particular rivers, lakes, and streams becomes bitter. Any questions up to this point? All right, let's press on then. Verse 12, the fourth angel blew its trumpet and a third of the sun was struck. Note that word. It doesn't say dimmed. It says struck. We'll talk about that in just a second. A third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them were darkened and a third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. Now, again, there are all these reoccurring themes of thirds. 33%, one-third, one of three, incomplete. The number three is uh, used as a perfect union all throughout Scripture. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, body, soul, spirit with that union of spirit of God being within us. There's also the third of represented by a marital union, uh, husband, wife, and God. This is a, a holy union. So one third, one from three, suggests incompleteness, rebellion, something that was supposed to be part of that communion that is exiled themselves. That's kind of the imagery, the symbolism. So there's also the fact that this particular trumpet judgment is impacting sources of visible light. Third of the sun was struck. Now that word literally means to be smitten, like a hammer striking against metal. That's what that word means. Now in, in English, back in the sailing days, if you want something to become non-functional, you would strike it, like strike the sails or strike the switch. But in this case, it doesn't say that. It actually suggests by the wording that some physical damage was done to the sun, and likewise, because it uses the same phrase, the moon itself. But the effect of that striking is that a third of its light is no longer visible. Same thing with the very stars in the sky, that a third of them can no longer be seen. Now, how did John tell that you could no longer see a third of the stars in the sky. 
or that exactly one-third of the sun is no longer visible, or exactly one-third of the moon is no longer visible. Some say that it's because he's seen the pattern, and now just because the light is now diminished, this is, this is his educated guess at it. But others say that something very visible has happened that he can see one-third gone and know for a fact that it's a third. In either case, it's a scary outcome. Yeah. The, the, the thing about this book is that John writes it uh, from the point of experiencing it. Like he's having conversations with people. He's giving you basically the account of what he's witnessing. Anything else before we move on? Yeah. Come and see. Whew. Now this is this is very strange stuff to our ears, but that's the implication of the book, is that he's 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 not writing down a poetic guess as to what's going to happen. He's giving us an account of what he's bearing witness to. Yeah, that's an interesting. Well, uh, the the statement was on trying to imagine if what would happen to the Earth if a third of the sun suddenly blinked out. Uh, yeah, temperature changes like mad. All of a sudden, we catastrophic nuclear winter type of events. Um, you know, that's a third less light, which means anything that is reliant upon the sun for energy photosynthesis solar panels, uh, etc., that's gone or that's significantly reduced. Um, the moon would affect the tides as well. And that's a good question. If, if, is it, if, if, the, if the moon is a third less because the sun is now a third less, because remember, the moon doesn't give off its own illumination, it's a reflection of the sun. But if it's physically damaged it doesn't weigh as much as it used to, which could mean all other kinds of things. Asteroid storms raining down upon the Earth, meteor showers. Uh, if it doesn't have as much mass, that means gravitational shifts, which can mean uh, issues with the tides of the seas. A lot of this stuff, again, we can see kind of the trumpet judgments kind of overlapping each other, if you think about it. But that's, again, very conjecturable. For all that we know, it could be something as simple as it dims by a third. And that's an indication of something later to come. Or it could be literal damage being taken. We Unfortunately, the wording suggests damage. But again, the reason I'm offering all these different versions of what I've come across is not to indoctrinate you on what I think, but it's to give you something to chew on when you read this book, to come up with conclusions on your own, and to be aware that these other interpretations are out there. That, that would be, <laughs> very glibly put, that would be a an antidote to global warming, yes. But let's, let's go on. Let's go on. I don't advise it. The, the order of events suggests that they're not all at once, but they're sequential. Right, so the, the question was on when we started chapter 8. Incidentally, I apologize for the last session. I apparently uh, put that title bump for the chapter as the wrong chapter last time. My apologies for that. Hopefully our, uh, our AV club over there can work their magic and uh, fix that before it inevitably becomes backlogged as Jason's error page. Anywho, um, 
the, the way that it's set out, it's set out in the same structure as the seals. So I don't think that it's all happening all at once, but, but it, it is happening one at a time and then compounding upon the other. Good discussion tonight, guys. Good discussion. Uh, anything from the online crowd? No? Okay. For those of you watching online, please don't, if, even if we're into this and it carries to us a little bit late, please take advantage of the live comments. If you have a, a comment or a question, please let us know so we can integrate that in with what we do here. Verse 13. I looked and I heard an eagle flying high overhead, crying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who live upon the earth. And because of the remaining trumpet blasts that the three angels are about to sound. Now, let me uh, throw this next card over there, and then then I'll I'll take your questions. Um, there is now we've studied this on Sunday nights in all of the Bible source material. Even through the thousands of years it took to, com to complete and to uh, put together, there is only a, I think it was a 4% variation in grand total. But there is, this is one of those 4% differences. In Textus Receptus, which was the, the monastery copies uh, that led to the English translation of the King James Version, the uh, Jerusalem Bible, and so forth. It translates the word that is in this version translated as eagle to angel. In the more eclectic um, manuscripts that have been collected over time, the earlier Alexandrian codices, the Codex Vaticanus, and so forth, they identify it as eagle. And if you ever see the words in Greek, you can understand how it could be a miscopy because they are very close. Either way, one of the things that we could get from eagle, if that is indeed the case, is that eagles are symbolic in biblical uh, literature as sources of strength, speed, and farsightedness. So one way or another, uh, I do believe that this is an angelic type being. I don't believe that there are birds speaking in heaven. Now we have seen angels that do have faces that resemble eagles. But either way, we are seeing a, a created being here communicating, and he's communicating um, kind of a countermand. Well, something that's juxtaposed, juxtaposed between what the angels sang earlier in the book. Holy, 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 now we hear woe, woe, woe. Holy, holy, holy to God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, now woe, woe, woe to the people of earth with each woe being assigned to one of those three remaining trumpets. Incidentally, the word ketoiko, uh, my, for, my, my apologies for anybody out there that actually speaks Greek. That's the word translated as woe. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. That's the word that uh, is used to identify those who dwell upon the earth. The word uh, literally means to reside. Uh, it could mean a dweller, inhabitant, to, to house permanently. But the implication is that this person is a citizen of the earth. This isn't somebody that just happens to live on the planet. Uh, we call, as Christians, we call ourselves a citizen of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, that we are ambassadors in foreign and hostile territory. Okay? We're, I'm... I'm I'm a pilgrim and a stranger here. I'm seeking a city to come, uh, to quote one of those old songs. But that's the truth. Where our citizenship isn't on this planet, our citizenship is not the kingdom of this world. It's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. 
who he's talking about here, woe, woe, woe unto the citizens, those who identify themselves with the kingdom of this world because this world is being judged. Okay, that out of the way, questions? Okay. Now, the other word that I wanted to uh, go over with you, um, and I put this up here for my own personal edification. I hope it helps some of you too that are listening to this. When I hear the term, woe is me, I think of somebody asking for mercy upon their life circumstance. But that's not it at all. Uh, the word translated woe here, O-I, uh, is a primary exclamation of grief. Translation, it tells somebody else that they are undergoing a state of calamity. This is not a statement begging for mercy. This is an identifying uh, fact of a condition. You are sick. You are in trouble. Woe to you in your circumstances. So, what the angel, uh, the conclusion of this chapter is basically saying is if you thought the first four guys were bad, you haven't seen anything yet. Because what's coming next is far worse. And think about everything that's happened. Think about the four horsemen and what they did. Think about the rumblings, the peals of thunder, the earthquakes that we've already heard about. Now you, you, you think about uh, the, the one horseman already raised the price of all, um, of all necessities of life beyond imagining. You know, a, a loaf of bread for a whole day's worth of work. But now what we've got is a whole third of all farmland is gone. A third of all potential fishing is gone. A, a third of all fresh water is gone. Plus more thunderings, lightnings, and in all of this. And this angel is yelling, you haven't seen anything yet. Chapter 9 for next week is going to be outright crazy compared to the stuff that we've already seen. And nine may itself end up becoming a two-part session. Um, so what I want you to do for next session, for session 22, read all of chapter nine. While you're reading it, I want you to pay particular attention to like or as statements while John is describing something. And, and I want you to pay particular attention to them because, again, you're talking about somebody who has no frame of reference except descriptors for what he's going through. These locusts are like horses. They have something like a breastplate of iron. Their heads look like a person's. You know, all these are descriptors. So they're not... Uh, this is him trying his best to describe for you exactly what he's seen. Try to figure out, and this is a challenge to you, this is your, your journal challenge if you want. Why are these three last trumpet judgments different? Why are they so much worse? And I'll tell you from the, at least the first two, it's not an easy, it's not a hard guess. It's not a hard guess at all. Because we hear in one descriptor that people actually beg for death for a period of five months, yet death does not come. Try in reading the chapter with those like or as statements to figure which descriptions are literal and which are figurative. Where is John saying that a locust is a locust, for instance, and where he's, saying, he's trying to describe them by saying, uh, that they're well armored, like their, their coat is thick and dense and they look a certain way, versus that they actually do have a literal head of a person, a literal mane of hair like from a woman and so forth. Where is he being literal and where is he being figurative? Please keep your journals. I ask you this for another reason. 
This is a devotional practice that I challenge you to take. Not just for the sake of what you're reading so that you can go back to it and examine it later on, but also as, as, as a, a form of prayer meditation, if you will. Um, think of this as a devotional practice where you're reading part of the Word of God and you're doing it deliberately. Not just to get through it for the sake of the assignment, but you're marinating on it. You're, you're, you're meditating on it. You are looking it over and slowly pausing and considering it and praying over it. Please, please, please pray over this stuff as you read it. And not only journal down what you think factually, but what also comes to you in that season or those seasons of prayer. Are you with me so far? Okay, and lastly, whatever comes to your mind, even no matter how bizarre it may seem, in fact, the more bizarre, the better. I'm probably going to eat those words next week. But if something does come to you and it challenges you, share that with your group fellowships. Whoever you've been calling, whoever you've been meeting for coffee, whoever you've just been yakking about stuff with, please keep those alive and keep the conversation going. Anything else before we dismiss? All right, if not... We'll conclude with a word of prayer if we'll bow our hearts together. Heavenly Father, please continue to offer us your encouragement as we consider the pages ahead. Lord, we claim the mercy that we, through the blood of Christ, will not be a recipient of your wrath. But Lord, as we hear of these terrors, as your wrath is poured out upon a people that have rejected you, we ask for you to make of us messengers that will help to save those who otherwise would undergo these horrors, that you would turn us into, that you would reignite within us a fervor for evangelism, that rather than see our neighbors, our children, those yet to be born, fall under this kind of judgment. Lord, that you would spur us on to share the good news of Christ before it is everlastingly too late. Help us to do this. Help us to take courage and help us to wear well the badge of our King. And it's in His name, the, the most holy and the matchless name of Yeshua, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.